Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and getting in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 76, and I'm so pleased to have been able to talk with Alison Weir for the second time about her upcoming book on Anne Boleyn called Anne Boleyn, A King's Obsession out in the U.S. on May 16th and the U.K. on May 18th. You can get links to buy the books and learn more at englandcast.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which gets you extra mini casts, exclusive content like free online courses from time to time, and other fun stuff. So let me introduce Alison Weir to you if you have been living under a rock and don't know her. Alison Weir is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels Catherine of Aragon, The True Queen, the Marriage Game, A Dangerous Inheritance, Captive Queen, The Lady Elizabeth, An Innocent Traitor, and numerous historical biographies, including The Lost Tudor Princess, Elizabeth of York, Mary Boleyn, The Lady in the Tower, Mistress of the Monarchy, Henry VIII, Eleanor of Aquitaine, The Life of Elizabeth I, and The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which was the first Tudor history book that I ever read on winter break in 1996. So, that's my personal share. Alison lives in Surrey, England with her husband. So we jumped right in with me asking her about why she started this series of historical novels and how her opinion of Anne has changed through writing this novel. The idea for the series came to me literally one of those eureka moments. I was sitting in my agent's office in um, October 2014. We're discussing ideas for future fiction. And suddenly this idea came to me, six books, six novels on the wives of Henry VIII. And I thought, well, no one would take six, six novels. But the reason I'd suggested it was because I, I, I published a composite biography many years ago, and it's out of date now. And for some years now, I've been comprehensively in my spare time re-researching and rewriting it. And a lot of new things have emerged from that, new research, new theories. And I thought these could underpin the novels because it's going to be a very long time before the biography ever sees the light of day. Mm. And I thought these, you know, this new research could inform the novels. And, uh, but I thought, I thought no one would take this, these books because the six wives of Henry VIII have been done to death, basically, including by people by, like me. <laughs> um, so, but yes, they did. There was competition for the series. And uh, fortunately, Headline commissioned it. And it was one of the best things I ever did was sign with them. <laughs> Yeah, excellent. And so tell me about the new book and um, about the things that you're learning about Anne. 
There are quite a new, few new aspects to, to, to Anne Boleyn, some th new theories that are emerging. And it's, and th th I mean, the most important, the, mo the most striking thing I think about her was, is the fact that you could call her a feminist of her time. And that's, um, I mean, I, I would have said, I mean, I, Anne Boleyn, let, let's start at the beginning. Anne Boleyn is nowadays seen almost as a celebrity. And she's, and I, I ran a sort of poll on Facebook not that long ago and said, why do people, why are people so fascinated by Anne Boleyn? She's almost become the new Richard III. You're not supposed to even criticize her. A, a lot of people have very romanticized views. And I think a lot of that derives from the television series, The Tudors, for example. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people came back to me and, and responded and said, because, because we see her as a feminist icon. I thought, well, that's an, completely anachronistic. And I was saying this um, not long after, but, you know, when I was approaching at writing Anne's novel, the novel about Anne, to the historian and author Sarah Griswood, who's a good friend of mine. And she was researching a book called Game of Queens. Right, and it's right. about the women who ruled in medieval Europe. And we actually, I'm going to plug an interview I did with her on the show as well. So, Oh, well, you know something about <laughs> the background for this then? Because, yeah. I mean, she, she has a marvelous approach to history, almost lateral thinking. And her insights are unparalleled. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I said to her, I said, oh, this is anachronistic, this view of Anna's feminist icon. She said, well, actually, um, it's not too wide, the mark, wide of the mark. Because it's true, in England, and we look at Anne in, basically from an English perspective, um, there was no feminist movement. But in Europe, right from the 15th century onwards, we had what's called the Carrel des Femmes, the, uh, the women debate, we could call it. And it's, it's a debate that's originated in Italy and in France with Christine de Pizan at the beginning of the 15th century, gathered momentum towards the end of the 15th century and was one of the hot topics in, in Europe, in European cultural thought, it, you know, at the time of Anne Boleyn's youth when she was serving at the courts of Margaret of Austria and Marguerite of Navarre. And these ladies were both great proponents of the Kyle des Femmes. Uh, they both, thought, you know, were, were, were stand, outstanding examples of women who in their writings and in their interests advocated feminine equality. Mm. So if you look at Anne within this context, and she was at a very impressionable age when she served Margaret of Austria and must have become familiar with Christine de Pizan, and, and also, with when she was older, when she served Marguerite of Navarre. But I think it was this that made her stand out and seem so exotic at the English court when she came there. Not just the French fashions, the French manners, the fact that she spoke French, but the fact that she had these very advanced ideas, which hadn't yet really hit England. They did later on in the Renaissance, but not at this time. Sure. So that's the most startling thing that came out of it. I was very struck by... Um, the uh, Anne and Reform, the, the, the banned book she made Henry VIII read in 1528, um, some years before the Reformation actually happened, you, they, they are the seeds of the Reformation, and it's her vision that helped to shape it. And that shows how enormously influential she was. Mm. She's also the first modern queen of England. She's she broke the mold. She distanced herself from the medieval ideals of queenship. Mm -hmm. um, Catherine of Aragon is the last uh, the last great medieval English queen, um, taking in after her the footsteps of her mother of her mother-in-law Elizabeth of York, who's the perfect medieval queen. Although mm -hmm. Catherine failed in that she failed to bear the king a son, which was the queen's first duty. Um, there were other, there's another thing that, that intrigues me about Anne Boleyn, that in her last confession, she swore on the salvation of her soul, she had never offended with her body against the king. Why did she qualify that? Mm. Why did she not 
say, it could have been in contrast to, as opposed to plotting his death. But why did she say with her body? And it led me to wonder, had she offended in some other way? Mm-hmm. Because there are some hints in the sources. I'm certainly not saying that the charges against her were, were, you know, were, were justified. There are some hints in the sources. There could have been something between her and one of the men accused with her, uh-huh. not her brother. Right, right, right. Interesting. So ha- given all of that, I was going to ask if your opinion of Anne has changed through writing this, and it sounds like it, it does. And I remember last year when we spoke, we actually talked about this anachronistic view of Anne as a feminist. And so it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about her in this context right now. Um, and so are there any other ways that your opinion of her has changed in writing the book? I think, I think, I mean, I mean, I can see how much more powerful she was and how more, much more influential, but of course, in the end, marriage did it for her because while she, all those long years when she was the king's mistress, and I'm talking about in the courtly sense, when she had mastery over him as her servant, uh, and he was happy to play that role, and he was still waiting, almost certainly waiting to consummate their relationship. Um, the, she had so much influence, but once she married him, he, he went into conventional mold. He was the husband. She was subject to him. He had dominion over her. She, I mean, you can see you can see this problem they have that she's sort of fighting against this. She's going on the same way she has always done and now he expects her to be a submissive fruitful wife and in the end of course her biology well biology defeated her because she lost all her sons Mm -hmm. she probably lost three of them yeah and that's that's her tragedy and a tragedy in a way i say her tragedy in a way because in some way she was very unsuitable as a queen consort she was she was she's quite unique actually she doesn't really set a pattern for future queen uh, consortship She's 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 a one one off on her own because Jane Seymour went back into the traditional mould, and you and Catherine Park, you know, she 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 argued with Henry on religious matters, but Anne is quite unique. Um, she's the first. She I think it's because she became queen and because she had these re- very strong reformist ideals and tried to push them through. Yeah. So she was very influential, and we have today. We are living with the you know with in 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 a, in a country that's been shaped by Anne's vision. Mm. So yes, I mean, I can, I can, I, I, I can see her. I can see her power. I mean, if I, if, if for Catholics, obviously, they wouldn't see her in the same way. I, I try to keep an objective view. I'm, I'm Church of England, but um, <laughs> not strongly. Um, but I can see her in that way. I don't think she. On the other hand, we have the damning testimony of Eustace Chapuis, and anyone. And there's been a lot of research done recently on Chapuis. And he was close to events. He was in the confidence of many people who were close to events. And as David Starkey points out, he cites his sources. We can evaluate them. Mm-hmm. And he didn't hate Anne to begin with. So he, there must, I mean, obviously he didn't approve of, of her position and what she was doing. Right. But he, I think that his concerns for Catherine of Aragon and for her daughter Mary, against whom Anne was quite venomous on many occasions, um, I think they were genuine concerns. Right. And for anyone who wants to betray Anne in a sympathetic light, they have to get over the challenge of these of, of Chapuis' testimony. Mm. And it is borne out by other things. I mean, her cruelty to Mary is borne out by a letter she herself wrote. And what letter was that? Tell me. For those it's children. a letter where she says, uh, she says um, I think it was, it was give her a good beating or something for the cursed oh. bastard she is to oh, the, the, right. the woman looking after her. Sure. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that letter corroborates what Chapuis, what Chapuis is saying. And in 1535, which was a terrible year for those who were on the opposite side of the fence, this is the year of, the ex, of many executions of people defying the king, so not refusing to take the oath of supremacy, which acknowledges his marriage to Queen Anne. Uh, Moore and Fisher went to the scaffold. Carthusian monks suffered in about three batches of martyrs. Mm. And uh, the nun of Kent had been the first bloodshed uh, over the great matter in 1534. And it's this year when Anne becomes very, she's, her threats against Catherine and Mary are becoming worse. She's urging Henry to have them executed. And of course, Henry's in a difficult position, naturally. I mean, he, he's his own daughter. Right. And although he's displeased with her, he's, he never took that step. Uh, he threatened it. He blustered. But a lot of Henry was bluster, actually. If you look at all the threats he posed during these years, he didn't carry out very many of them. And when he did, everybody was quite shocked. So do you um, actually think she really want, like she really was a danger to Catherine? Yes, I do think she was. Mm. Um, there was um, because I think she was in, in very insecure. And I talked to my editor about how, how to pray, play, to portray her sympathetically but and, and I said this is going to be very very difficult because of this you know this evidence how she was with Catherine and Mary and my editor said well try to see why she behaved the way she did and that gave me the key and so if you if the book is written wholly from Anne's point of view mm-hmm. so you have a chance to get inside your subject's head when you do that mm-hmm. and I think it's all the root of it all is insecurity and fear and when I delivered the book to my agent he said you, it's a really sympathetic portrayal so I was pleased about that because I wouldn't probably portray her quite that way as a historian so, because I you know you, you you get inside someone's head at your peril as a historian. <laughs> sure do you think I know I've read people going back and forth did she actually set out wanting to be queen or was this something that events spun out of control for her and she got placed in this horrible situation or a situation that overwhelmed her um, and she didn't want to be like her sister and so this was her other way out. What do you think about this idea? Did she really set out for this wanting to be queen? I think there must there was probably a point at which yes she did. Mm. Um, it's the way she the way she treated Cardinal Wolsey um, and that's in 1527. That's quite early on. Because, I mean, Henry had, um, it's, by, it's in around 1525, probably, Henry first started pursuing Anne. And th- this affair was kept very secret, as according to the rules of courtly love. And it was only, it was in the spring of 1537 when the French ambassador raised the question of the Princess Mary's legitimacy and started set alarm bells ringing in Henry's head and Henry starting looking at reading Leviticus and thinking that his marriage is unlawful and he wants an annulment and secretly he applies for one and it's the, it's in the autumn after that that Anne Wolsey goes to France on a mission and when he comes back Anne makes her venom absolutely clear mm-hmm. and she's she's obviously set on a certain path now did she want the crown but rather than the man we don't have her replies to Henry's love letters. We've got a huge gap. And in many ways, she's unknowable because we don't have the wealth of letters as we do with Catherine of Aragon, who poured out her heart passionately, all her feelings, all her hopes and fears into her letters. Mm-hmm. But for Anne Boleyn, we don't have that. Right. So she is unknowable. And most of what we've, we've got are reports from other people, often hostile, because she was very unpopular. There's no doubt in that. State papers are absolutely littered with slanders. So I don't know. It's very hard. To, it's very hard to decide what she felt because 
she went she when she was queen she went through the conventional forms of saying that she loved her husband but in those days it was it was a spouse's duty to love their husband or wife you can see it it's a rather different approach mm-hmm. if we say we love our husband or our wife or our partner we we know that we you know we actually mean it we, right. in that sense but when they're saying it it's a convention and so even that isn't really a clue Right. It's not like Jane Seymour, who was terrified that Henry would, you know, leave her when she was frightened of the plague and everything. She clung to him. Um, we don't get that with Anne at all. Mm-hmm. And his his increasing, uh, she had mastery over him. I'm not saying she didn't have affection for him, but we just don't know what what she actually felt. This is this is what's so frustrating. Uh-huh. Um, I know. And also, people say she held him off for seven years. Um, I don't think so. And I think that someone who he was, he was, he, it was, the passion was on his side, definitely. And I think he, he made that decision not to sleep with her. I, and it, 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 it had a, a really bad impact on him. And I think that, but I mean, if, if you love someone, it would be very hard to resist them for that time. Sure. And that, that's what makes me wonder. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You talk about the impact that it had on him. Um, how do you think Henry was changed by Anne? It wasn't just Anne. I think it, I think it was. It happened before that. Um, I think people said there's a very popular theory at the moment that Henry was knocked out cold in 1536 after a fall from his horse right. and was unconscious for two hours and it changed and changed character because of possible brain damage. Right. The, the the report that says he was knocked out cold it actually comes from a highly unreliable source in Paris, and sources in England uh, say he took no hurt. They all said it was amazing he wasn't killed, but he took no hurt. Nobody seemed unduly bothered in England. I think the report got garbled, and we can prove the others. It says that there's other source, the papal nuncio in Paris, to have been inaccurate in other in other reports. Mm. So I don't I don't buy that theory at all. There's no other evidence, no evidence to support it. And uh, if you look at Henry changing in character, you can see that happening gradually, right through from the 1520s onwards. And I think it was frustration that made Henry what he was later on. And it's frustration at not having a son, at being trapped in a marriage from which he could not get out, at not being able to fulfill his passion for Anne Boleyn, and at the Pope endlessly delaying, dithering over giving judgment for political reasons rather than religious ones. Mm-hmm. And I think all these things combined in Henry and anyone's, but by the end of this time, anyone's defiance was anathema to him mm-hmm. because he was so frustrated with everything. He'd been a good son of the church. There was no real reason. There was a way out of, of annulling the marriage. The marriage was probably valid if you look at the canon law, the marriage to Catherine. Mm-hmm. But there would have, then might have, Wolsey wanted to offer the Pope a way out, but Henry didn't want to do it because it would have meant arguing, uh, you know, that Catherine had, had, hadn't, hadn't been a virgin when he'd been saying all along she had after her, his brother died. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to do that. He would have lost faith. I see. But it might have been the way to you know, for the Pope to have given a judgment favorable to Henry without offending Catherine's nephew, the Holy Roman Emperor. So what do you wish that everybody would know about Anne? What's kind of something that that you, if you could say one thing about Anne to someone who's never looked at this time period before, what would you like to say about Anne? It's a very dramatic story, because how could you say just one thing? Because it's almost as if there are two Anne's. Okay. There's the Anne on, in the tower and on the scaffold who has this dreadful end 
and, and shows incredible courage. And there's the woman who has been the scandal of Christendom. And then there's another Anne, of course, the Anne who pushed through the Reformation mm-hmm. and was, was a, politi- a, a, a skilled political operator. So she is degree. really multifaceted. That would be the one yeah, thing she about is multifaceted. her. It's, it's, she is. And this walls. modern, the way people romanticize her in a modern way, also she was, she was beautiful. I mean, you, if you look at some of the images people draw of her, or the, the artwork that appears on the internet, it's such a romanticized view. And she's, as I say, she's become a, a, a celebrity, and it's so far removed from this woman who wasn't very beautiful, as, as most people agreed, and who, um, who, who could be quite vicious, but also who was very, very tough. It's rather different. I think if, if she hadn't met the end she did, supposing she'd had a son, I don't think she'd have the following she does. Right, that definitely adds to the drama of it all. Oh, it does. It's, yeah. it's romanticism in its broadest sense. It's a very dark tale. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm one of the. I I haven't always been very sympathetic to Anne. I I guess she's just been overdone so much, and I kind of yep. just don't. I don't know. I I just kind of my eyes glaze over or something when people start talking about her. Um, but I, I'm really interested to to read this new research and i i love the writing of christina Pizan and the city of ladies and that's such a you know, yeah. fascinating book and so um it's so interesting to imagine her at the court of margaret of austria and reading these things and then taking that back to england i'm i'm excited to see her from that perspective well you will get quite a bit of that and there is an author's note at the back and there are going to be articles published on bbc history extra um, is coming. There, there will be several things coming up on on these aspects of Anne, which go into more detail. Yeah. The Tudor times. It'll be about Anne in France. It's a bit of a mystery. It's a it's it's a mystery what happened to Anne in France. Um, the the likelihood that she knew at least by sight Leonardo da Vinci, and and you know this European perspective. We need to see Anne in that perspective because that's what you know that's that's what that's what made her. Thank you so much to Allison Weir for taking the time out of her busy writing schedule to talk with us. I personally will never forget the day that I fell in love with this time period on a winter afternoon in 1996. There was a blizzard outside and I was on winter break. And a few weeks before I had bought The Six Wives of Henry VIII because I thought it looked interesting. So I took it off the shelf and I remember so clearly that afternoon reading in front of the window as the snow fell. And six hours later, I was hooked. And it's not an exaggeration to say that that book helped shape the trajectory of my life. Five years later, I was living in London, surrounded by this history, traveling around on the weekends using my young person's rail card, seeking out history and stories. So thank you, Alison Weir, for being the catalyst of that. Anyway, thanks for letting me do that personal share there. Feel free to get in touch with the podcast with me through englandcast.com, where you can also sign up for the super cool mailing list, or facebook.com slash englandcast. That's E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast. Next episode, I'll be back with crime and punishment in Tudor England, so stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Sweating, love.